London Property, home of Super Prime, where you can find informative, educational and entertaining content covering all aspects of property. Hello and welcome to the London Property Podcast. I'm your host Farnas Fazaipur and today we're in conversation with Alan Kennedy, again back on our show, who is an expert in taxation. Um, he started his career with the HMRC uh, and has now moved on to uh, advise high net worth individuals either before they buy their properties or um, those who own property in, uh, in the UK um, to make the most of their taxes. Welcome back, Alan. Thanks, Good to be back. Thanks. So, um, you know, with it being tax season, we thought it would be quite topical to have some uh, basic conversations with you for our listeners um, on what they need to know, both on a personal level and on a company level. Um, uh, and let's let's talk about buy-to-lets. So, um, should we start with 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 those who own properties in a personal level and what they need to be aware of? when they're preparing for their taxes, what's deductible, what's not deductible, and just making sure that they're prepared, you know, if not now for this year, but certainly preparing for next year. Yeah, sure. Well, I think for people who own portfolios of properties in their own name, um, usually the the big issue is whether they've got some bank debt or not. And um, as many of the listeners will already be aware, um, there is a restriction, unfortunately now, for interest deductions, which means that interest uh, gets a tax deduction at a value of 20%, but the rental income itself will be taxed at the marginal rate of the owner of the property, which in many cases might be 40% or even 45%. So you get a very unusual situation that can develop where you might have a rental property, for example, that just breaks even because of the interest costs and the other costs on the property. So you're not actually making a profit at all. Um, There's no money left after all the expenses have been paid. But if you're a 40% taxpayer, um, the interest element, because it's only deductible at 20%, you will actually end up with a tax bill, even though you've not made any money. So that is a real red flag for people that they need to be aware of, particularly if you're thinking about investing in property for the first time. If you're already in that situation, um, it would be great if you could move to a, a company owning the property. Now, that's not straightforward, but the advantage of a company is that the interest will be deducted at the same rate as the income is taxed. So you don't get this uneconomic uh, consequence of uh, bank debt causing you a problem. It's not simple, however, to move property into a company. There'll be capital gains tax consequences and there'll be stamp duty land tax to pay. But there is a way to do it, but only if you have the right circumstances. So if you're someone who's got a portfolio of properties, and broadly speaking, you're working at least 20 hours a week to manage that portfolio, then it can be possible to incorporate and not have any CGT when you do that, because there is something called incorporation relief for a business. It's a bit of a hot topic with property as to whether people are actually doing enough um, to be treated as a business. And There's been some tax cases on this, but that can solve the CGT problem. Um, For stamp duty land tax, bizarrely, 
even if you incorporate, there's no automatic relief unless you have a partnership. And as we know, lots of people just operate on their own. And it can be possible, particularly in the situation of a married couple, for example, to move into a partnership. And if you do that on a genuine and proper basis and you run the partnership for a reasonable period of time before you incorporate, then you will get the relief from SDLT. But for people who are starting out in property for the first time, I think company is probably the, the recommended way to go in most cases. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, isn't there uh, also, if you've got debt on a portfolio, is, th is there something about that when you're in a partnership to try and, and, and move over into a company to avoid SDLT? It's well, well, yes, the SDLT um, is payable on debt. So if you're giving someone an asset in the form of property, but at the same time you're asking them to accept the debt, then there will be SDLT payable on that. But with the, with the uh, incorporation relief, it can be possible to avoid that too. Okay, good to know, because uh, we, we're feeling it in the rental market that actually, and I don't know whether this is the result of individuals being, you know, squeezed on their cash flows, uh, but we're feeling it in the rental market that there is actually a shortage of stock. And uh, I wonder whether people have now started to react to this situation of, of being, you know, taxed heavier, really, as individuals than as corporates, because, the, 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 you know, rents have gone up. I think 13.8% was something I read yesterday. So there is really having yeah. an impact. Yeah, I think it's certainly made buy to let less attractive for individuals. And some people, I guess, just find the concept of starting a company, maybe for the first time, a little bit alien. And maybe that stops them stepping into the market and uh, offering properties for rent. And if you are to um, set up a company, because we all know that, you know, when you're, when you're um, going into, into a buy-to-let uh, situation, you know, you need to get all your numbers right and make sure that, that, that everything makes sense. But the stamp duty is higher for, for corporate purchase. Are there any reliefs for genuine rental investors or is there not such a thing? Well, the, the stamp duty... Um, for a company that it will always pay the additional 3% surcharge. But for an individual who's going in to buy to let, it's unusual, I would say, for them not already to, to own a property. So they will almost invariably um, have to pay the additional 3% themselves. So I think in that sense, it's neutral. One disadvantage or one of the disadvantages of a company, of course, is the extraction of profits. So if you are making profit, the company will pay corporation tax, and that's currently at 19%. But then as an individual, if you want to take that profit out, you're going to have to pay dividend tax. And depending on your tax rate, that could be as high as 39.35% on the dividend uh, if you're a 45% taxpayer. If you're a 40% taxpayer, it's 33.75. So the overall tax burden then becomes quite high, and you have to decide you know when you're looking at personal ownership maybe versus company is this something where you want to roll up the profits for example or will you need to take the money out every year because even with the the restriction on interest deductions it still might be cheaper in the end um, to have the money available to you rather than having to take a dividend and the other point of course is is the capital gain at the end so if you're 
going into maybe a single property investment and your your plan is to rent it for five years and then sell, then you're going to pay capital gains tax at 28%. So you'll realise your profit at 28. If you do the same thing in a company, then again, we'll have the company paying corporation tax when it sells the property, but you still have to get the money out of the company and you'd have to liquidate the company at that point and probably pay another 20% CGT of liquidation proceeds. So having an eye on the end game and how much of a portfolio you're going to build, I think will influence how you structure it from day one. Yeah, sounds like you've got to make sure you get advice uh, before you do any of this stuff. So on the subject of, of capital gains, um, there there's different ways that, that they look at capital gains, right? You've got some things that you can deduct and then there is a difference between trade income, short-term, long-term ownership. Is it is that something you can talk to us about? Yeah, so the main the main issue with property and what's deductible usually revolves around whether it's a capital expense or just a, a revenue expense. And the simplest way to think about this, because people do get confused about it, is for capital gains tax purposes, you can deduct anything that is an alteration, an extension, or an improvement to the property. Running repairs, you will deduct in your profit and loss again every year against your rental income. But it's things like you know a, a dormer extension to a bungalow or something like that, or putting a, an extra basement in on, you know, those are extensions, improvements, and they all count for capital gains tax purposes. And obviously, it's not just the fabric of the building, it's all the professional costs associated with that that come into play and, and, and really form part of what the asset is at the end. And if it's represented in the form of that asset, you have architects, planners' fees, legal fees, etc. they all form part of the base cost for capital gains tax purposes. As does SDLT? Yeah. So you can deduct that as well. And then, as you say, the other things like the running expenses, the wear and tear, um, these all get uh, deducted on an annual basis from your profit and loss. What about enhancements to the property that are requested by tenants? So tenant says, I'm not going to rent that house unless you paint the walls in this color and, you know, change the cabinets. Yeah, that, you know, painting the walls a different color, that's that's not going to be regarded as a capital gains tax base cost, but it will be a, a revenue expense that you can deduct in the year. And, you know, with the cabinets, et cetera, we have, you know, the, the wear and tear allowance regime that can be used for things like that, um, that where you get a, a straight line deduction for that over a period of time. Um, and are there any, th th does the revenue look at things differently? Because, I mean, you also have um, developers, for example, where they buy a property and uh, they fix it to sell it. And that market, you know, is, is, is under a lot of pressure for a lot of different reasons. But are there any tax incentives to actually encourage people to provide housing, to buy things, to fix, to sell? Is there, you know, something that um, if you are a bona fide developer, you can benefit from? Um, I, I think if you're a developer... Um, again, if we look at company versus individual, people would invariably go down the company route because the individual will be chargeable to income tax on a development. That's the key thing. It's not capital gains tax. 
There are a lot of arguments, lots of tax disputes that we've come across over the years where people are just unaware of this rule and they take on a project and they expect and they budget for capital gains tax at the end and then suddenly the the accountant or maybe it's HMRC even says, actually, no, you don't owe us 28% tax, you owe us 40% tax or 45% tax. So de-risking that through a company is is probably the first thing uh, that I would say. If you are um, a trading company, if you have a, a holding company structure, so you don't own the shares directly, but you have a holding company above that trading company, it can be possible if you've got someone who's prepared to buy the shares in the company instead of the property itself, because maybe they want to save the SDLT um, and only pay 0.5% stamp duty on the purchase of the shares instead of you know, maybe a, a blended rate of 10% or something SDLT, then they can save money with the SDLT by purchasing the shares. And if the holding company sells a trading subsidiary, it's possible that that can be completely exempt from corporation tax at that point, which would then allow you to liquidate the holding company and take all the value out at a flat tax rate of 20%. Um, so there's, there, I've got myself a note here, which, which, which I was hoping you will clarify, but there's no, not, no difference in taxation for short ownership and long, long-term ownership. I know in France, for example, if you hold a property for 30 years, then you become free of CGT. And I know that here we've got the principal home uh, being you know, the most tax efficient uh, way of holding a property. But there's nothing about short term and long term that, that... No, there's nothing, there's nothing specific. I think in France now, the, the maximum period for the, the sort of the tapering of the CGT rate, I think it's about 22 years or something now. Um, but in this country, really, um, the length of ownership influences how HMRC look at the transaction for sale. So if you have, for example, developed a property and you sell it within 12 months, even if you had the intention of renting it out and you change your mind and someone makes you a fantastic offer and you decide to sell it, because it's happened so quickly, there'll be an argument if you're not using a company, if you're an individual or a partnership, they'll have an argument with you about, is this really capital gains tax? You know, didn't you always intend to sell it? So the length of time that it's been owned influences the attitude of the tax authority as to whether it's really an investment transaction or a, a trading development transaction. Right. Um, I mean, we sort of feel a little bit under attack from HMRC since 2013, I think, in, in prime central London. Have we got any other surprises in store for us that we should be preparing for? Um, I, I hope not. I hope not. I mean, it's worth saying, you know, it's this time of year, where it's, it's April 22. So it's a big event in the world of ATED right now, because we're at the, the five-year revaluation of all the properties for ATED purposes. So anyone who's got a company that's liable to ATED needs to get their property revalued as of 1 April 2022, if they think they're going to be anywhere close to one of the, the edge of the HMRC bands to avoid any potential dispute about which ATED band and therefore how much money it's going to cost them every year. Um, 
And obviously, the ATED filings need to be done by 30th of April each year. So that's that's kind of on people's minds right now. I think just as a general reminder, it's not that long ago that we got the, the extension of non-resident capital gains tax to non-residential property and to what we call property-rich companies, where 75% of the company's value is from UK real estate. Now, the capital gains tax only came in from April 2019. Um, if people have not already had a retrospective valuation at April 19, I'd recommend they do that as soon as possible because, again, in years to come, properties will be sold, companies will be sold, and everyone will be scratching their heads as to what was our capital gains tax base cost. And if you're getting a valuer, you know, in five years from now, you're selling a property, 2027, the valuer says, this is what I think it was worth in April 19, this is your base cost. Um, HMRC valuer comes along and says, well, I've got a different opinion. Then you've got what I would call equality of arms. You've got two people arguing about what something was worth eight years ago. If you get your valuation done today, if you haven't already done it, then you've got a valuer who did a retrospective valuation, but only three years after the event. It's much more difficult then for the HMRC valuer to say, well, actually, you know, five years after that, I'm going to dispute what you said three years ago. So it gives you a much stronger position of certainty that your valuation will stand up and will be much more difficult to challenge by HMRC. Yeah. And obviously, this is payable on properties that are not being let out, that are held in corporate names and uh, yeah, are kept empty. Any, any property. I mean, it's, it's, it's land as well, undeveloped land. Um, you know, will will also um, come into this. So any land, any interest in land at all that's sold in the UK now by a non-resident is is liable to this tax. And we've had a a, a minor relaxation of the the filing requirements for capital gains tax for non-residents. So it used to be they had to file a return within thirty days of the transaction. That's now been extended to sixty days, but it's still a really tight time frame. And it can work slightly different for companies um, because they base it on their accounting period sometimes. Right. Okay. Uh, well, and you, you've you've got a, a a pending talk that your company is doing about uh, this register for overseas uh, landlords, which will be a whole other conversation to have. But just to touch touch on it briefly before we say goodbye, and uh, and we will sh- be sure to. To tap into your uh, intel on this uh, on a future future show, yeah, of course. So that this is part of what they're calling the economic crime bill, which I think was brought forward about twelve months because of the war in Ukraine, because there's a realization that that there's a lot of um, oligarchs who've got high value UK real estate, and the government is not always happy um, simply knowing that. For example, there's a, a BVI company that owns a large a large property in Knightsbridge, but who really owns it? So this is going to bring transparency. So any overseas company um, that owns UK uh, real estate of any kind uh, will have to, on a register at company's house, disclose who the beneficial owners of that company are. And that's going to obviously bring a lot of difficulties for privacy. 
um, and it's not restricted to you know any particular nationality. So it's going to affect everyone. So high-profile people, I know in the past, um, Emma Watson, the actress from the Harry Potter movies, um, she had a problem with a stalker. And for that reason, her property was owned by an offshore company so that no one could actually find out where she lived. You know, for people like her, their privacy is blown. So there's a lot of collateral damage. Um, but it will also have an interesting effect, possibly for inheritance tax purposes. Lots of um, foreign owners don't actually realise that since 2017, they have an inheritance tax liability. If someone dies owning shares in an offshore company that owns UK residential property, they actually should pay inheritance tax. But a lot of people just don't know that. And obviously, HMRC don't know who owns the offshore company. But very soon they will. Uh, and that means that a lot more um, inheritance tax will probably start getting paid uh, people will think about the need to take out life assurance to cover that risk. So there's there's a lot of a there's kind of a ripple effect that's going to happen from this. We also think, although the bill's all only in draft, that for offshore companies that own property, which are then owned by a trust offshore, um, because no one can actually own a trust, it's difficult to see how anyone can be named as an owner in those circumstances. So it'll be interesting to see if the final version of you know, what becomes the law will pick up on that point or whether that will remain um, perhaps a grey area. Well, we'll be sure to, to, to come back to you with a much more in-depth conversation on this topic and definitely uh, make sure to be at your, your uh, event on the, the 4th of May. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks, Farhad. Thanks for listening to the London Property Podcast. Head over to londonproperty.co.uk and subscribe to our newsletter to receive latest updates.